Hey everybody, welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. I am really, really grateful to have you guys here today. I have a very, a very exciting episode, I, at least for me. So I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I'm really looking forward to this one. And I have to be honest with you, I have put a great deal of time and preparation into this particular episode. It is very content heavy. Um, you may want to listen to this more than once because it really is sort of packed with a lot of quotes and dates, and a lot of really, really robust information. So I'm, I'm excited to share this with you. I hope I'm able to communicate to you that which comes from my heart and soul, because it really, really matters to me. What I wanted to talk to you about, as promised, is I wanted to offer to you a cautionary tale about what can happen in um, spiritual systems, in, in institutions, in our institution, <laughs> Um, what has happened and what can happen when we don't encourage people to grow psychologically and spiritually. This episode, I intentionally placed right on the heels of our three-part series on hallmarks of a spiritually abusive system. And I really talked a lot about, Nathan and I really talked a lot about how um, vulnerable many churches, if not most churches, are to having some components that can, in fact, be spiritually abusive. Now, what I wanted to focus on today is that what happens when people live their lives in systems um, that have the component parts of spiritually abusive systems is that the, the, the individuals in the systems, in the churches, don't become the very best and most developed versions of themselves. I find that really ironic because if you think about it, the whole purpose of a church is to help us draw closer to God. It's actually to help us to become more like our heavenly parents. If the church is doing um, what it's supposed to be doing, it's actually giving us all of the resources and all of the information and all of the um, access to as best as it can. It's helping us actually become more like God. It's actually helping us become the greatest and most whole or complete versions of ourselves so that we can take this increasing intellect, this increasing discernment, this increasing ability um, that comes with growth and development. We take all of those assets and we use those in the world. We make the world a better place because we become more whole ourselves. But when the system doesn't encourage that, then we go out into the world and we do just the opposite. We do harm. Okay, so now what I wanted to do today is I'm going to offer to you, like I said before, I am going to do a breakdown of a case study of what happens in church systems when things go terribly, terribly wrong and when people are not given the tools to become the most whole versions of themselves. The case study that I'm going to be drawing from is a study on the um, an analysis of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its handling of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. Okay, so what you're going to hear from me now is I am going to basically give you a multiple part breakdown of a bunch of events, a long string of events that happened and then I'm going to do a bit of an analysis. And I think you're gonna be fascinated by this. I am taking my scholarship from a fantastic book 
called The Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power. This book is by um, one of the church's most gifted historians. His name is D. Michael Quinn. He just passed away, sadly. And he does an analysis of this. You can also find uh, quite a bit about this in um, the Women in uh, Mormon Feminism, Essential Writings book. I can link both of those in the show notes. They're both fantastic. Which, what I'm going to be quoting from today, though, is D. Michael Quinn's book. Okay, so let's go ahead and just get started. Um, the Equal Rights Amendment was an amendment that was going to be or was uh, attempted to be passed. And our church uh, did a great deal to discourage the passage of this. And I'm going to sort of break down what happened. Um, it wasn't just simply that they didn't feel good about it and they went out and, and they went out and voted. Um, but rather, um, there was a lot of deception and there was a lot of um, exploitation of the members and um, blind obedience and things like that. So let me just talk to you a little bit about how much of what I'm going to say today has to do with the way the women handled the Equal Rights Amendment and how they were very instrumental in obeying the priesthood and in behaving the way that they did because of the leadership of the churches asking them to do that. The interesting thing that I want you to understand, although this did happen in the 1970s and 80s, is that our church actually has a phenomenal history of incredibly powerful uh, women. We're, we're a church that is founded, interestingly, although we were founded in, in, in the Victorian period, you know, in the 1830s, our women were actually very progressive and forward thinking. Okay, so I'm going to quote to you a little bit about what these women looked like in the 1870s. Okay, during the 1870s, Mormon women voted, served on the Central Committee of the Mormon Political Party, edited a suffragette periodical, graduated with MD degrees from Eastern medical schools, administered the first Mormon, administered the first Mormon hospital, and became lawyers at the Utah Bar. A Mormon in 1896 was the first Mormon elected as a state senator in the nation. That's in 1896. So we have precedents to be people that would actually really, really be on board with something like the Equal Rights Amendment, which is actually encouraging equality between the sexes in the 70s. Okay, so you're probably wondering, like, wait, what happened? How did we... What shifted? What changed? Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read another quote to kind of help you understand how things evolved and how we completely turned on ourselves and became absolutely um, not one of the most forward-thinking feminist groups, but one of the most backward-thinking. Okay, back to Quinn. He says this, however, from the 1920s on, Mormon women experienced an erosion of their autonomy and status. In this complex development, general authorities increasingly adopted Victorian ideals of domesticity and ignored earlier teachings and examples of female autonomy. Administratively, the process was complete by July of 1970 when the first presidency ended the financial autonomy of the Relief Society and dismissed the organization's traditional fundraising bazaar, calling it a noisy carnival-like commercial atmosphere. So what, what I want you to think about is it, from the early church on, the organization of the Relief Society was treated as, um, as an, an equally powerful women's organization to sort of pair with the men's organization of the priesthood. Okay, there is even argument that women actually held the priesthood starting um, in the endowment sessions ceremonies in the early church with the prophet Joseph Smith, but that's for a whole other podcast. What I'm trying to say, though, is women were powerful, but slowly between the 1920s and the 1970s, their power was eroded through the church correlation development. They became 
an appendage of the priesthood and they basically lost all of their power. They lost their magazine. Um, they lost a lot, if not all of their autonomy. And they also most definitely one of the most painful parts was they used to be financially autonomous. And then that all was taken from them in the 1970s. They actually became, um, as the 20th century wore on, they became incredibly socially conservative. And therefore, um, women's liberation movements uh, were considered during, um, as, as they grew in the middle part of the, of the 1900s, they became something that felt and looked extremely dangerous to the church. Let's enter into this idea of, so in the mid-50s, there was a, uh, the first initiation of an equal rights amendment where the government was trying to extend the rights of women um, in a variety of different areas. Interestingly, in 1950, when this first was introduced, uh, Elder J. Reuben Clark said, suggested, this is a quote from Quinn, suggested that the Relief Society keep out of it. And these are his own words. He said, there will be some of the women who think it is a fine thing. Okay, this gives me hope um, in some ways in that at one point in time, at least one of the church leaders basically said, you know what? let's let people vote according to their conscience. Some of these women may think getting their own rights is a fabulous idea. Okay, fast forward. Um, it did not pass in the 50s. So we're going to fast forward one uh, 20 year period um, when the church shifted gears and that had to do a lot with the changing of the of church government. But by 1972, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was now back um, on the circuit, um, trying to get passage in the United States. And at this point in time, um, although J. Reuben Clark had um, initially said, let's just stay out of it, new leadership was on board and they um, decided, as you will see in great detail, that they decided uh, not to stay out of it. Um, but let's just talk a little bit about what the members themselves, um, how they felt, okay? So before the church got formally involved, with the Equal Rights Amendment and started really micromanaging how the members should behave, I'm going to just read this part to you because you're going to see that when the members were allowed to actually just vote on conscience and act according to what they thought was best for them, they actually were in favor of equal rights between men and women. Okay, here's a quote by Quinn. He says this, by December of 1972, bipartisan action of 22 state legislatures, legislatures, yeah, legislatures ratified the proposed amendment. Le LDS legislatures voted for the ERA in Hawaii, Idaho, Colorado, and California, where Mormons had significant percentages of the, of the population. In states without Mormon representation in their legislatures, rank-and-file Mormons encouraged ratification, especially in Maryland, where the Belt Route Mormons were prominent near the nation's capital, and in Massachusetts, where there was a thriving Mormon community in the Boston area. Idaho, in fact, ratified the ERA in a landslide vote of 58 to 8 in the House and 31 to 4 in the state Senate, with an I or a yes vote of nearly every legislator from the Mormon counties in southeastern Idaho. So what you're probably hopefully picking up on, you guys, is that Latter-day Saints in the 1970s were by and large on board when they were able to vote by their own conscience. And the reason why is because President Harold B. Lee um, was pretty silent on um, how people should handle the ERA. However, after his death in December of 1973, um, 
it seems as if President Spencer W. Kimball had a very different perspective. And that's when things sort of started to get a little bit more messy. President Kimball, or at least um, the general authorities after Harold B. Lee's death and during President Kimball's administration, created something called the Special Affairs Committee. This was organized in 1974. And they decided that defeating the Equal Rights Amendment was very, very important. And so they actually, um, I think what they had noticed is they'd seen the polls, they'd seen the way things were moving, they, they saw other states ratifying it, they even saw Latter-day Saint states ratifying it, and they decided that they needed to intervene. So they actually used, uh, sadly, they used the uh, Relief Society General President, Barbara B. Smith, and she was instructed by two apostles on what to say in her speech to the LDS Institute of Religion at the University of Utah, which is where this sort of um, push began to defeat the ERA amendment. This is where uh, we struggle as a church with this sometimes. I'm just calling this the double speak section. On the one hand, they had created a special affairs committee to um, organize uh, various uh, means by which the ERA uh, could be defeated uh, throughout the nation. But on the other hand, in Jan before January of 1975, President Spencer W. Kimball said this, quote, um, the church stays out of politics and thus has not taken a stand on equal rights amendment. Okay, that's great. However, a week after, church headquarters went ahead and actually did the very opposite. And the, this, the book says this. This is Quinn speaking again. A week after the church president's noncommittal statement, the church headquarters gave the only signal necessary to defeat Utah's ratification of the ERA. An official editorial in the LDS church news opposed ratification. Okay, so the church is getting stressed out, and this is the reason why. By the fall of 1976, 34 states had ratified the ERA, only four short of the requirement for the proposal to become part of the United States Constitution. Those at headquarters recognized that there needed to be um, that recognized that more would be necessary to stem the momentum. So, on the 22nd of October of 1976, the first presidency issued a formal statement against ratification. So they're really starting to come in strong. The amendment they said would indeed bring women far more restraints and repressions. And he, they also said in their statement, we fear it will even stifle many God-given feminine instincts. So the church comes in and actually tells the people how they're supposed to feel about this, about this amendment. So the church comes in, they tell the people how they're supposed to feel, and immediately um, people start uh, switching gears. Um, a lot of the politicians that were very loyal to the church, they start changing their votes then what ends up happening is this is really, really getting ramped up um, in June of 1977. The year 1977 was called the International Women's Year. And this is where women were, there's an organization that was, was going around the country holding conferences to help women better understand what their, what their rights were and what the uh, what the, the Constitution would look like if the Equal Rights Amendment was to pass, which was to help women have equality, that there would be equality of genders. And so it was an education conference and was also um, it was scheduled to help people better understand and um, vote for different elements of the ERA uh, Equal Rights Amendment. OK, so the church knows that there is a conference coming up. And there were some mixed feelings about how to handle this. On the one hand, they said, you know what? 
I don't think the the um, LDS women should show up because then it'll look like they are feminists and that they have a feminist agenda and that they're somehow supporting the Equal Rights Amendment. Well, somebody else had a better or they thought it was a better. I don't feel like it was a better idea, but you'll see why in a second. It occurred to one of them, back to a quote, it occurred to one of them that a legion of loyal Mormon women could overwhelm the conference. A conservative Mormon majority could set aside the presumed feminist agenda of the Utah International Women's Meeting and act as a standard bearer of traditional family values. Okay, so what they ended up doing is they ended up going to great lengths um, at the uh, local church level to organize an entire army of conservative Latter-day Saint women to show up at this conference and basically completely sabotage it. Okay, so mind you, remember, before the church's opinion was formally put forward, they actually, many people, or at least more than half, far more than half, were actually in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. But once they were told they needed to think and feel differently, many, many women actually got on board and really colluded in this sort of sabotage of this conference. Let me tell you a little bit more about how this looked. In early June of 1977, I'm reading a quote here. This is Quinn again. By means of a telephone tree, Ezra Taft Benson communicated down the Mormon echelons of leadership in Utah to send 10 conservative Mormons, Mormon women from each ward to the upcoming IWA conference. Expecting no more than 3,000 3, attendees, the IWA organizers were swamped with 13,867 women. This is more than twice the attendance at the IWA state meetings in either California or in California, which had 20 times Utah's population. The women were instructed to attend the conference as a ward representative to vote down the ERA and other feminist resolutions. Okay, so the way they prepared these women who were um, these conservative Mormon women in the ward, 10 per ward, was they um, helped them understand what was really going on. They didn't want the women to believe that this was actually good for them. They wanted them to see this as dangerous and something that they couldn't necessarily. Um, they were basically told that even though it sounds good, it's not good. So I'm going to read another quote here. Before going to the IWA meeting in June, many of the Utah Mormon women attended anti-feminist, anti-ERA orientations by the Conservative Caucus of Utah, led by Mormon Bishop Dennis R. Kerr. The most detailed study of the Utah IWA conference notes, quote, Kerr and his group warned women about lesbian takeovers, unfair voting practices, and being subjected to pornographic films. I suppose, I'm closing my quote here, but I read that and I thought, wow, they thought they were going to show them those in the conference? <laughs> so the point there being is before they sent them, they educated them, and in some ways, I feel like this was propaganda, and basically told them how evil and wicked this conference was. Even if it sounded good, it wasn't good, and they really frightened these women so that they would show up and behave as they were instructed. Okay, part of this conference was the women did have opportunities um, to vote for or against proposals that would then go to a national, an international women's year um, conference in Houston, Texas later on that year. Okay, so I'm gonna read a little bit more. You guys, when I read this part, um, I, I was speechless and I know that's hard to imagine because very rarely is Valerie Hammaker speechless, but I read this part and I, I was not only speechless, but I was, I was just like sick to my stomach. Okay, so just take a listen here. 
Okay, so you've got these 13,000 women. They're here to sort of overthrow the conference. Um, they want to make sure that none of the resolutions get passed in Utah. And so, okay, sorry, here's the quote again. <laughs> Frequently coordinated by men with walkie-talkies, these conservative women called for immediate votes on proposals without allowing discussions. And thanks to their stunning majorities, this cohort of women rejected all 47 proposals of the, nas of the national um, leaders. Okay, so these proposals were what needed to be voted on so that Utah could be seen as a state that was going to support the amendment. They voted down every single one of the 47 proposals without there even being an education or a discussion or without any sort of questions or answers because the women didn't need to know because they were already just blindly following the instructions of their priesthood leaders. Okay, let me just read to you a handful. There are six of the 47 that they rejected. And I think the reason why the author added these was because as you are going to hear, the fact that our own Latter-day Saint women voted these down is um, heartbreaking and pretty devastating to me, actually. Okay, so these are the amendments that they voted. These are what were rejected. Number one, Federal and state governments should cooperate in providing more humane, sensible, and economic treatment of young women who are subject to court jurisdiction because they have run away from home, have family or school problems, or commit sexual offenses. Number two, federal and state laws relating to marital property, inheritance, and domestic relations should be based on the principle that marriage is a partnership in which the contribution of each spouse is of equal importance and value. This was rejected. <sighs> I'm having a hard time reading these, you guys. This makes me so upset. <laughs> okay. Proposal number three, alimony, child support, and property arrangements at divorce should be such that minor children's needs are first to be met and spouses share the economic dislocation of divorce. Rejected. Women not protected in this case either. Proposal number four that was struck down. Medicare coverage should be liberalized and the use of generic drugs of certain of certified equivalent quality should be allowed and encouraged to reduce the cost of medicines. Once again, rejected. Hurting women. Number five, state and local governments should revise rape laws to provide for graduated degrees of the crime to apply to assault by or upon both sexes to include all types of sexual assault against adults and to otherwise redefine the crime so that victims under so that victims are under no greater legal handicap than victims of other crimes rejected and number 6 homemakers displaced by widowhood or divorce should be helped to become self-sufficient members of society through programs providing jobs counseling, training, and placement, advice on financial management, and legal advice. Rejected. I don't know about you guys, but as I was reading this and thinking about how these women sort of just blindly um, self-betrayed as um, an entire gender, um, it, it just, the implications of this are huge, um, as well as what this means about the psychological and spiritual agency of these women, that they would do this um, without even sort of blinking an eye and actually feeling probably pretty virtuous and honorable and noble in, in the very act. 
All right, I'm going to read um, a little quote about um, this blind obedience. The men of the Conservative Caucus and at least one Relief Society general board member had told these women to vote against every I International Women's Year proposal, no matter how good it might seem, and the women obeyed. The LDS women even rejected a resolution against pornography. As of January uh, 1977, 35 states had ratified the ERA. This 70% approval reflected national support during the next five years, including polls of full-time housewives. Ratification was now only three states short of a constitutional requirement. Opponents saw themselves in a last-ditch effort. But by September of 1977, a nationally syndicated newspaper reported, quote, the Mormon presence has helped defeat the ERA resolution in several states. So as you may imagine, in Utah, they, it was defeated because of the switch, because of the church's formal um, rejection of it and, and telling the members to, to uh, decline it or deny it. Um, but by the end of 19 or by the beginning of 1977, uh, we were getting very, very close to it, um, needing there, it needed a little bit more support, and it was getting kind of frantic. Uh, existing evidence verifies, back to Quinn, existing evidence verifies a centrally directed, locally implemented, and successful effort by the LDS Church to prevent ratification in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Maryland, Missouri, Nevada, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Virginia. Spoiler alert, you guys, the, uh, the, the ERA amendment was not passed in the late 70s. And um, there is, uh, people believe that it had a lot to do with the, uh, this, the infrastructure of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and their um, extremely um, high level of organization and obedience to these um, and, and how they activated themselves and their women. Let me just give you a rundown. I'm not going to give you too much more specifics about how this all went down, but I'm going to just generally talk to you a little bit about how they did this when they sort of branched out um, nationally and um, some sort of troubling thoughts and feelings about this. Okay, so some of the things that they did to contribute to um, the the non-passage of the uh, Equal Rights Amendment um, the Enzyme published statements by the Relief Society General President, President Kimball, and Boyd K. Packer against ratification. Um, there were statements read over the pulpit at local Latter-day Saint congregations, and copies of various pamphlets um, uh, against ratification were distributed in Mormon homes before crucial events and votes, uh, between, before crucial elections and referendum votes. Um, another key feature of how this was the organization, how this was done is Mormon congregations receive leaflets describing how to vote for referendums and sometimes um, even how to vote for which state legislatures. Another point that I found kind of disturbing is Latter-day Saint missionaries sometimes were involved in pre-election canvassing. Something else that came up in the in the um, analysis after this went um, after the historic, you know, the historians um, started looking at this is um, there were very few details of cross-state financial activity um, because most organizations failed to register as lobbyists or to file the legally required reports for donations. So a lot of this was going on um, under the table and not in sort of official channels. So there may have been other entities and probably certainly were other entities that were lobbying for and against the Equal Rights Amendment, but the church sort of did this whole thing 
um, under the table. They were they they did it unofficially, and they actually didn't even um, they intentionally did not organize. Um, they organized more around voting districts than they did wards or stakes. Another point is uh, some local leaders posted anti-equal um, rights amendment petitions in the foyers of chapels. Um, and they also had uh, events where speakers came in and talked about this in some of the churches. Um, some petitions were even passed around during sacrament meetings. And if you're interested in like where the primary resources of all of these are, once again, I invite you to go back to uh, D. Michael Quinn's book, The Extensions of Power. Um, it's a very thick, robust book, but half of the book is literally his, um, his research and it's his documentation. It's his bibliography of where he found all of the data that I am actually sharing with you now. And finally, um, back to these uh, subpoints about what happened as the church was complicit in the uh, in the in having the uh, Equal Rights Amendment not ratified, is that local LDS leaders encouraged members to write letters to state legislatures, but always encouraged them never to identify themselves as LDS. Um, so the fact of the matter is that um, while there were multiple factors that went into the defeat of, you know, the, the fact that this was not ratified, what a lot of scholars that have studied this have said is that even though, like, we did not represent numerically a very large population at all of those who voted against the RA, but the impact that we had was massive because of our organization efforts and because of the church's in, imposing itself on the consciences of the people in the church to tell them how to vote and what to do and to do very, very formal efforts in really, really um, pushing forward their agenda. Okay, um, let me just read this quote that kind of is sort of uh, uh, talking a little bit about how this all went down and, um, and some of the people's analyses of sort of post non-ratification. This is Quinn against, and then some quotes embedded inside of Quinn. Women were the main participants in all of the local activities against the Equal Rights Amendment. Women opposed the, okay, so this is a quote um, that one LDS author said. He said this, women opposed the ERA because it jeopardized the way of life that they had entered in good faith. A critical reason for ERA, Oh, okay, sorry. And then he goes on to say a critical reason for the ERA's defeat, defeat was opposition from the women. Now, if that were really true, I think that would have been absolutely fine. If the women, any women of any faith and inner persuasion came out to vote and studied the issues and pondered and thought about it and decided that this was really not in their actual best interest and they voted against it, then that sounds like due process to me. That sounds like um, psychological freedom. And their votes were counted, and this is how it went down. However, what we know is that that is not what happened. I'm going to go back to Quinn and quote this um, follow-up to the statement that the um, gentleman said who didn't necessarily know about the machine of the church sort of um, imposing itself on the on the consciences of the women. Quinn's response to that, which was kind of, you know, the man, the man in the earlier statement was just like, hey, they just voted by conscience, and this is, they voted, and this is the outcome. Quinn's kind of like, I don't think so. He says, Yet only a minority of the American women opposed the ERA. Shortly after the proposal's defeat in 1982, a Gallup poll studied, a Gallup poll showed that 61% of American women wanted Congress to reintroduce the amendment and begin the ratification process all over again. Quinn goes on to say it also is misleading to suggest that Mormon women became involved in the anti-ERA campaign by happenstance. In the Mormon way, 
The agenda and directions were male authorized and hierarchical. The results demonstrated politically the view of one al analysis that, quote, the Mormon church is a central command system. Whatever the outcome was, all of the sides recognized that these church headquarter direct directed activities would have direct consequences on the political rights of non-Mormons. So because we organized the way we did, not only did we actually hurt ourselves, and not only is this evidence of how underdeveloped psychologically the women of the church were in the 1970s and early 80s, but their underdevelopment and high co complicity and ability to sort of um, come forward and do what they were told actually hurt a lot of people. Oh yeah, finally, I think this is fascinating. Okay, so even after this whole thing went down, I'm actually reviewing with you um, about 20 pages of a very dense article about the ERA. I'm kind of just giving you a little bit of overview. Okay, so what we're talking about here is that because um, the, the, the fact that the Latter-day Saints, even though their numbers were relatively small, had massive impact on the non-ratification of the failure of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s and early 80s, the interesting thing is um, that this, um, this, the supposed success, and I use that in hand quotes, the success that the church had in, um, in following through with the actions that they were wanting to follow through with, which is the non-ratification, did not ever, even after the fact, represent um, the truth of how Latter-day Saints actually felt. This is Quinn's quote. He said this, nevertheless, okay, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, even though the votes looked one way and the church's impact was huge from the grassroots because of them following instructions. This conceals the curious fact about many Mormons' private views. Now I'm quoting, more than half continue to support the content of the Equal Rights Amendment, even after the first presidency's statements in 1976, 1978, and 1980. Polls during the 1980s showed that 53% of Mormons who um, who said they were opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment actually agreed with the phrase, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by a state on account of sex. They would agree with that if it was presented to them without identifying it as the Equal Rights Amendment. So what, what I'm trying to get at you guys is that if they were able to just use their own brains, they absolutely were in support of the Equal Rights Amendment. Back to the quote. In total, 69.3% of the Mormon sample in 1982, the year it was struck down, 69% of the Mormon sample in 1982 favored the text of the Equal Rights Amendment. The Mormon hierarchy's official rejection was apparently what made the difference. Okay. I'm done with my little history lesson with you guys now. I just want to kind of talk to you for a second about this. Okay. What are some problems here? Okay. There are many, and I'm probably not even going to hit all of them, but I'm going to try to hit a few of them. Okay. Uh, a big problem that I have is that the church um, and any church is, is by churches shouldn't be interfering in politics. Uh, a second point is in this case, I really, really went out of my way to help you see that the church imposed on the consciences of the individual members of the church. If this is a really uncomfortable 
moment for you as you listen to how this um, sort of um, went down, if you listen to how um, people sort of stepped forward and just did what they were told, even against their own better judgment, that should concern you because that's in fact very, very concerning. When a large body of people is so quickly able to subvert their own conscience to the leaders, that is the sign of a very, very spiritually underdeveloped and even a very spiritually sick system. And the Equal Rights Amendment is a phenomenal case study in helping us better understand what went wrong, in what ways um, it went wrong, how it went wrong, how this idea of sort of just listening to your leader and not worrying about um, understanding the depth and breadth of any complex issues, political or otherwise, how problematic this is in fact. Not only did it hurt the women themselves of the church, it, it hurt the families of the church, it hurt the generations that followed, and it actually hurt every woman and probably conceivably every individual in the United States of America because this was not ratified. And it all came because women were in their own minds virtuously following the higher law and following a prophet, even though they weren't um, following their own consciences because they had in fact been trained not to listen to or follow, follow their conscience. This flavor of spiritual underdevelopment is what wounds people psychologically it actually can wound them um, in very, very like real in this world kind of ways where people don't actually trust themselves. They don't listen to what's going on. They don't, um, they don't necessarily have the ability to discern who to be in relationship with, uh, what to study, where to live, um, what to pursue, how to spend their time because they haven't cultivated the skill set to be psychologically free people. And like I said before, this is a cautionary tale. We can't let this continue to happen, you guys. And we have to call it like we see it. If we, if we don't see it, we can't change it. And the reason why I wanted to share this podcast with you is because I wanted you to see that there is evidence and there are historical stories that help us understand um, in a really clear way what went wrong why it went wrong, sort of how these things began. And there's, I probably could really spend a lot more time deconstructing this. I'm just sort of simplifying it, but I really want you to think and feel and chew on this and think about all the problems and also how we as a body, those of us who are um, trying to sort of stay psychologically engaged in our own growth and development inside of an institution, we can't perpetuate this kind of, of ignorance and psychological immaturity anymore. We can't do it. Okay. Just a couple of other quick points before I close today, because I know I've been going, um, I've been going on and on <laughs> is one of the things that I found very troubling about this cautionary tale is that it implemented um, this us against them sort of mentality, meaning that it really, um, it, it painted the equal rights amendment as evil and bad. It didn't actually, um, there was no encouragement to actually study to look at what it was trying to um, forward. It just basically said, if you, one of the ways that they trained these women who attended at least the conference in Utah was basically to say, don't trust them. No matter how good it sounds, it's not good, it's bad. And these women who had been trained to not question authority just believed that. And so it basically um, positioned them in this place where they were to fear the world, which again, I think um, comes as part and parcel of, um, of our persecution complex and our unresolved trauma as a church, which is the world or the United States is bad. 
and we can't trust it. We can only trust ourselves and our own people and our own leaders. And that did us a great deal of damage. Okay. And then something else that bothered me, there was a lot that bothered me, but just something I wanted to kind of highlight is um, sometimes there is a culture of double speak. Uh, vote however you want. You have the freedom of speech, but you really don't. Um, secrecy. I didn't go into any of the details. Um, I could have, but I, I knew that I was already kind of covering a lot. Um, there was a lot of, of secrecy around how they were sort of um, organizing themselves and wanting to make it look unofficial when it wasn't. And there, were fi- there was financial secrecy. There was um, organization secrecy. Um, they didn't necessarily follow a lot of the laws um, that um, organizing groups follow when they become involved in the political process. And, um, and that is dishonest. And so I think sometimes um, we have in the culture been led to believe that um, that the means justify the ends, meaning that if, you know, if, if salvation is at play, um, if it's about eternal life, then whatever it takes and whatever I have to do in the interim to ultimately achieve the goal is okay. And we've made a lot of really problematic choices in the church because we believe that we have all of the truth and salvation is the end. And then we, um, we, we do some very unethical things in the process. Now, I haven't mentioned this, but I mean, what, what is just sort of dripping throughout this entire problem or this entire cautionary tell is the problem of patriarchy. Not only is this an issue um, directly of patriarchy, of, um, you know, to the credit of the United States in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and, you know, beyond, we have been working towards trying to um, give equal rights to women. And during this equal rights period of time, the church was really pushing back um, because we've always as a church, or at least almost always, or you could you could argue always, uh, we've struggled with the idea of um, of patriarchy. We want to um, we want to maintain patriarchy. We don't want the women to have their rights. And so what they did is they clothed um, keeping women um, in a lower position. Um, as something that was virtuous and protective of the women. And the women bought in because they didn't have the psychological agency um, to see through that and to recognize that that was wickedness, that that was wrong, that that was inappropriate, and that was keeping them um, um, underdeveloped and oppressed as a, as a race um, within the church and within the world. And the church, uh, the world was uh, moving forward and the church didn't want the women to move forward. Although interestingly, once again, if you actually just ask the individuals through the vote, they actually, because people and human beings and children of God definitely have the sense of right and wrong within them. If the systems don't get involved, the people actually agreed with the tenets of the Equal Rights Amendment. If you just were able to sort of pull the leadership out of the fray, and once they weren't involved, if the people were just able to vote their own conscience, they wanted what was what was good, right, and true, which is clearly a divine concept, which is equality between the sexes. Okay, you guys. I know I've opened up a lot of questions. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to share this podcast with you, honestly, is because to me, um, I, as you may know, if you've been listening to me at all, is I'm, I'm, I'm basically consumed with a passion to help people become psychologically developed. I want people to grow up. I want the church to grow up. I want us to become more spiritually whole. And until we see the problem, we cannot fix the problem. And this is a phenomenal example of what happens um, at an institutional level when large numbers of people collude in the gross underdevelopment of the institution itself. So what we need to do is take these um, lessons and figure out for ourselves how we can be different as individuals. 
Um, that's my plea to you. That's what I try to do every day by the running of this podcast, um, by the small groups that I am um, sort of playing around with. Um, we just started the first one. If you're interested in a small group moving forward, I am starting a wait list for a second group. If you want to know more about that, it's a weekly Zoom conversation. Uh, men and women are invited. And um, basically, it's a support group to help us as we are working on our own faith development um, struggles, um, victories and defeats, and uh, the disorientation that comes when we really, really start um, taking ownership of our own psychological and spiritual development journeys. And um, it's a very disorienting time for many of us. And I have been shocked and um, surprised and tickled um, at the same time for those of you who are coming to me and wanting uh, more support. I'm doing these groups because many of you have come to me um, uh, solicited wanting um, coaching or therapy. And I'm not able to really do much of that individually um, just because I'm, I've run a busy private practice and I've just kind of run out of hours of the day. But I can and am happy to do group work, not only because I enjoy actually meeting you, but because I want you to meet each other. I want to actually create a larger community of folks who are like-minded and like-hearted, who are wanting um, our, our, our world to heal, our church to heal, our families to heal. And um, it's something that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of understanding of the problem. It takes the ability to wrap words around what we've been feeling for a long time. And that's why I'm here for you, you guys. So if you want to join one of these groups, reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com. I will create as many groups as there is interest. And also you can reach out to me if you are an Instagram person at Latter-day Struggles Podcast on Instagram. That's the handle. Please, please, please pause, write a review and rate this podcast. It helps um, other people find it. And as per usual, please share this with other people in your circles. Thank you guys. So good to be with you. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.